This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there, and welcome back, everybody. Now, today, I want to build on the focus of last week's episode with Morag Gamble, in which we explored the challenges and the opportunities for environmental and societal regeneration in refugee communities. One of the people that Morag mentioned in the interview, who is also pioneering regenerative work with refugee communities, was Natalie Topa. I immediately recognized that name from an inspiring webinar that I'd watched in which Natalie presented her work and design methods from her experience working in post-conflict and disaster zones, as well as refugee communities in East Africa. In general, I have so much respect for people who take on both the personal risk to go and work in conflict or post-disaster areas, and who take the heavy responsibility of deeply listening to members of the communities that they're working in to understand their unique situation before jumping to conclusions about the solutions that they think that those people need. And Natalie is an inspiring example of both of those capabilities. But let me take a few steps back and give you some context. Now, Natalie Topa was born to a Polish immigrant mother and a Ukrainian refugee father who grew up in Rio de Janeiro. Natalie herself was born in Buffalo, New York, and then moved to Denver at the age of five and grew up in Colorado, where she completed her bachelor's degree in sociology and human services and a master's in urban and regional planning with a focus on economic development. She later moved to South Sudan after the signing of the 2005 peace agreement to work on post-war town planning and reconstruction, and then started to work with displaced populations on community reconstruction, agriculture, health and school facilities, water provision, and civic engagement. Since then, Natalie has directed programs in climate change resilience using a systems-based approach that includes local governance, gender empowerment, market systems development, financial inclusion, food security, and natural resource management. Today, she works as the Regional Resilience and Livelihood Coordinator for East Africa and Yemen for the European Refugee Agency, bringing principles of permaculture and resilience design to post-disaster recovery, as well as root causes of displacement in multiple sectors. In this interview, Natalie starts by mapping out her wild journey into her unique line of work. And from there, we talk about the learning journey that has added new tools and options to her repertoire along the way. From there, we started to explore the types of situations and challenges that she encounters when she is brought in to work with a community and the process that she's developed to uncover the needs as well as the resources that those communities have. Natalie has so many examples of activities and exercises that she uses to get the full range of people involved with the design and development process, and her stories are truly inspiring. This conversation goes into some incredible and unexpected places, and Natalie isn't in the least bit shy about talking about the realities and the causes of the situations that she's encountered. So prepare yourself for a very candid and powerful conversation. And from there, I'll hand things over to Natalie Topa. 
Natalie, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be here this morning. I'm really excited to speak to you after seeing that presentation that you did with Riley and Zach. And to start things off, I would love to get an idea of how you got to work in this space. I know it wasn't your original intention to start teaching permaculture and ecosystem restoration communities. Well, thanks, um, Oliver, and thanks also to Zach and Raleigh. Um, there was really a positive response from that webinar, so I'm glad that people got to get some more insight on the work that's being done here. Um, so as I just was mentioning to you before we started recording, you know, I came here to work in South Sudan in 2005 to work on post-war town planning and reconstruction. And so I don't actually view what I'm doing now as different than that. It's all part of the same picture. It's just has become more and more comprehensive as I'm always looking at addressing the root causes. Um, I've been in the humanitarian sector for, you know, seven, actually 20 years now, because I, even before coming to Africa, I was seconded to FEMA to work on um, hurricane disaster recovery um, in Florida the year before Hurricane Katrina. So um, I came to South Sudan. I was working in this post-war environment where there were huge amounts of needs, including the need to create space and land for um, the, all of the returnees, the returning refugees that were going to be returning to South Sudan. So we were working with all the 10 state capitals as they were uh, establishing themselves as state capitals. There was a lot of infrastructure going on. Um, and then these human beings who were coming in who you know, didn't have services. South Sudan was at that time just Southern Sudan. It was the lower half of the whole of Sudan. So um, people needed food, they needed water, they needed shelter. They're coming home after decades of war. And, um, and there were a lot of problems in the context at that time. Drought and flood were there 20 years ago, 17 years ago when I got there. And I just couldn't accept that, <laughs> that um, this humanitarian emergency crisis response is the long-term solution. Um, because why, why would anyone accept that? So, um, so I just started to think, why do we have six months of water and six months of drought? Like there's gotta be a design question in here somehow. <laughs> And so that's when I, I learned about permaculture um, as an ideology and, and systems-based science uh, when I was in college, which was like 1990, I think between 1998 and 2000 was when I learned about it from my Brazilian roommate, who's an anthropologist. And when she described it to me, I had such a clear picture of what she was talking about and the systemic interconnectedness. And so... I sort of imbibed that in my journey in working in East Africa and tried to bring those concepts to my work. So the, the design, the, the solution-based approaches. Okay, so you used permaculture and I'm sure a lot of other learnings as additional tools to the original intention of helping people to rebuild after either catastrophe or displacement. And how did you start in that career path in the first place? What, what was your studies and what was the, the connections that led you to that? Well, so I, I don't even refer that often to permaculture because it's so all-encompassing for me and people like, you know, within our community and the regenerative community. Permaculture is everything. It's natural building. It's fermenting. So um, what took me on this path was, first of all, when I was working in D.C., um, I... We, I was working for a very large scale private firm, a globally renowned design firm, but they were dealing with more municipal level interventions. If it had to do with community development or minority communities, 
they were like, Topa, you're going to, you know, Southeast DC tonight or whatever. So um, uh, I always was driven by my ethics and, and a, a sense of social justice and, um, and all types of justice. And so, and, and that includes ecological justice. So when I came to South Sudan, I just started to see a lot of opportunities and I could sense, even though at that time, 17 years ago, I may not have been as conversant in the issues of soil and degradation, I was seeing it happen all around me. And it became very instinctual that something not good is happening and something is collapsing. You know, I could see that in the landscape. Um, to back up a little bit, I also come from an immigrant family. My mother uh, is from Poland, from Nobitarg, um, not far from Zakopane, and then my biological father was a refugee from Ukraine whose family got asylum in Brazil and he grew up in Rio, um, but then the person who raised me like a father was also a UNHCR registered refugee um, who left Poland to Germany, and so um, when we came, you know, when we came to the U.S., um, the way that we connected with our culture, even though I was born in the U.S., but my heritage security lied, relied on the, the relationship we had with nature and food. So we were doing a lot of wild foragology, though it wasn't called that at the time. Uh, but, you know, we would like go and fish for crawdads and go fishing and pick mushrooms and um and so having that relationship with my ecological surroundings was a really big foundation for me. But then coming into the space of, um, of you know, moving forward back into South Sudan, um, I just started to understand that uh, food security was a very huge issue. And especially when you're talking about a context that's a fragile state, instability, conflict, and war, food is a really big deal, right? I mean, food is a big deal for all of us, but it's, it just really can create a tipping point when a country is already destabilized for different socioeconomic and geopolitical reasons, that food can really be, a, or lack of food can be a driving force towards conflict and brutality and things like that. So I, I started to study more and more, and then um, I moved to Nairobi. I was trying to do my own gardening and learning about composting and that in the video with Mora Gamble on balcony permaculture, I was testing so many things um, and on my own learning journey. I was also cooking a lot. I'm kind of a home chef-y type person. So all of these things started to create a picture, you know, food, gardening, environment, ecology, displacement, the humanitarian context. So I just started to go deeper and deeper. And at one point I stepped back, this was a number of years ago, and I just was like, I have to go for it. I'm gonna take 18 months of a sabbatical. I don't know who, I wanna figure out who are the best of the best in the world on these things. So, you know, I went to greening the desert, Jordan, you know, <laughs> that's sort of the starting point for a lot of people. Um, and my mind was blown away by Tom Kendall. I knew at that moment that this is a massively transformative moment for my life. Um, and then I immediately went to do another permaculture design course with Warren Brush, who's been a mentor and a, and a, and a partner and a co-trainer now and, uh, you know, and continues to be a strong mentor in my life. And one thing that Warren always reminds me is always give your life's energy to life affirming endeavors. So that's a really simple litmus test for what I get involved in. Um, 
And then I went to, I've gone three times to study with Dr. Vandana Shiva in India. I've studied water harvesting with Brad Lancaster and David Spicer, dam building, studied dam building with Jeff Lawton. So, and natural building with Siggy Coco. If, she, if you know who Siggy Coco is, total superhero. Um, anyone in this world should always do classes with Siggy Coco. Um, they're <laughs> amazing. So, you know, between natural building and agroecology and agroforestry and the seed movement, I mean, all of these things started to fill in this bigger picture of all of the ways we have departed from a, a, a healthy um, cyclical relationship with our living planet. So that's in a, nut, a large nut, in a coconut shell. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, synopsis. And then I just kept digging from there, right? Um, there's no finish line to learning. So I've spent many nights, glasses of wine on YouTube, going down all the rabbit holes like we all have. So there was no magic, you know, program or anything. It's just investing the time and calories to sit through all those YouTube videos. <laughs> Oh, what a fantastic story. That makes me feel better about my own learning journey, which has been a real patchwork quilt as well. A little bit from here, Siggy Coco was one of the first people that I had in the, the first season while I was working through an internship in natural building in Guatemala. I worked on the ground with Mayan communities in bamboo building there, which led to learning more about designing ecology into the built space and how they can interact in a positive way. And all of these things, like you said, you start to pull the threads, you see how they're connected, and it just kind of balloons and evolves from there. And you mentioned earlier that your, your core motivation was to find root causes behind some of the devastation and the displacement and the suffering that you were seeing in places that you were sent to work in. With these new toolboxes and new ways of seeing how things are connected systemically, what are some of these root causes that you started to uncover? Uh, soil loss, soil loss, that is the big one. So, and, and human stupidity, that's another big one. Um, and I'm sick of, uh, you know, us referring to stupidity as climate change. So um, <laughs> I see, you know, people on LinkedIn and on social media keep showing photos of a drought stricken farm or landscape and they're like oh climate change and I'm like zoom in that is a totally tilled monocrop chemically farmed nightmare that is obviously going to become desiccated so let's not call that climate change because <laughs> it's just a complete lack of understanding of all of these systems that we really as humans need to be very literate in um, so, so soil loss I've seen all over East Africa and everywhere. I mean, I've, you know, been, I think, to over 60 countries, and I'm pretty sure that in each one of those, there's, you will see great evidence of a system, a systemic collapse in the local ecology. Um, and that, of course, is, you know, it, it is the number one major environmental problem on our planet right now, followed then by loss of biodiversity, followed then by pollution. So it is systemic. You know, I, I, I see even within the regenerative movement, people are like, oh, it's, you know, we've got to do holistic rangeland management. And, and there's this whole sort of very masculine meat related movement, 
within the regenerative community. Um, and then you have like the vegan situation and you know a lot of debate around plant-based foods. I'm an omnivore, I eat vegetarian, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I do really respect that people wanna be vegetarian, they wanna be vegan. I, I completely understand how that is. Um, but what, regardless of what your food preferences are, coming back to the soil is a really, really key thing. In the context where I work that are prone to conflict, that loss of soil can translate to extreme water events, um, it, you know, which drought is part of that, um, because as you know, when land starts to crust, you have increased runoff. And that means that water is moving away from, you know, like where pastoralists need it, for example. Here in East Africa, we have a lot of pastoralism. And you have very large herds of camels, cows, and what we call shoats, which are shoats and goats. Um, and they need water and they need great viable grazing land. And so as that soil has just become hot and desiccated and cannot hold, its holding capacity for water is reduced. People, communities who may have historically had um, peace accords and agreements around entering one another's turf for shared resources has been, has collapsed. Um, so I think that underpinning so many of the issues we have here is soil. Um, then obviously the hydrological collapse, the short water cycles, you can speak to elderly Africans who will say, I swam in a river that used to be where this pit of garbage is now, plastic bags and just dried up, you know, maybe some lizards and insects crawling around. But um, yeah, the last loss of moisture and hydration in the landscape as well. Those are definitely the main root causes. And of course, the loss of biodiversity. So we have, and, and connected to that is the severance with indigenous relationships with local ecology and ethnobotany. There are, this place is replete with medicinal plants and traditional foods and locally adapted genetic resources, although we don't like to call them that because that sounds like a commodifiable thing, but, um, I, I think that there are social issues here, like stemming not only from colonialism, but a lot of other geopolitical forces and economic forces, that there's a loss of that indigenous connection to the landscape. So I'll stop there, but lots of root causes. No, no, that's a fantastic way of laying it out. And much like you said at the beginning, it's often glossed over, even from people who are trying to work in our space as, oh, it's climate change, right? Things are changing. And so... There's no evidence that this is something that we caused that we can reverse. Whereas so much of your work and so many other examples from that area can show what is possible, even under the exact same weather and climactic situations when those trends are reversed, when the mindset is changed, when people start to replace the missing elements within the ecology, but also within those community dynamics that are affecting the ecology. I also wanted to add another root cause is, is our global economic system and the prioritization of capitalist um, free market economies has been very damaging to ecologies all over the world. And um, so linked to that and regeneration is this concept of circular bioeconomy. How do we um, how do we do resource recovery and give any extracted resources, additional spins on the merry-go-round. <laughs> um, so I do think that the economy that has been shaped, and I have to say it, I have to say it, sorry, Oliver, but male-dominated industries 
all over the world. Like that is part of the social and environmental injustice that we're seeing and the sex, you know, the sexual and gender injustice. We can't separate that out from the conversation because we can't have ecological justice until we have social justice, which is racial, it's gender, it's sexual, but all of those injustices really play out in, in the capitalist economy. So it's just time for a shift of like a full like wholesale shift. <laughs> I completely agree and definitely don't feel sorry about calling out these things that you're seeing that you're experiencing all the time. And I mean, you could draw a pretty straight line between that and the effects on the ecology, but can you connect the dots for me here, how that kind of, you know, masculine led uh, industries and violence at a community level has displaced people directly, has changed the culture in very recent years, but also stemming back to colonialism. Can you kind of put those dots in together? That's a really big topic with a lot of tears. Um, well, first of all, you know, as Dr. Vandana Shiva says, um, and she's written many books and that touch on this, is that food used to be the domain of women, okay? Um, women grew the food, they, there with their teeny little fingers, they selected the best seeds, uh, everything around food production and cooking and the home and the kitchen and saving of seeds and propagating them and adapting them, all of that was really the space of women. And when we really started to poop the bed was when there was this wholesale masculinization of food systems. So what that means is that you had corporations um, which started to take over the role of food production, food processing, seed production, seed distribution. Um, and yeah, I mean, here in East Africa, you know, <laughs> thank God there are, or whoever, thank goodness that there are so many um, efforts at a local level. There are, you know, there are African actors who are actively trying to protect the seed systems and the seed security, right? Um, so in terms of, I don't want to get too much into colonialism because I'm not as conversant and I, I don't want to represent what um, the African community might feel has been the impact, but for sure there's been an impact and um, and hindrances. I mean, today, currently, you have massive corporate forces that are and have entered this space and are trying to completely drive the show in terms of seed security. So you have large multinational petrochemical corporations that produce seeds and they produce the poison cocktails that are supposed to accompany them, you know, from a market perspective. And there's a just mass campaigning and marketing to poor African farmers to use these stupid seeds that cannot be regenerated and saved and locally adapted and to, um, to purchase all of this chemistry. One major thing globally is that um, in agriculture, the, the, the knowledge about biology has been totally suppressed. They, we're not supposed to know that the chemistry comes from the biology because the biology we can feed locally to create the chemistry. But all you hear about is NPK, NPK. And when people here in, at least in East Africa, but I'm sure it's the case you know, throughout the continent, when they're learning about agronomy and agriculture, the focus is on corporate led NPK chemistry 
and totally ignoring and suppressing that what we need to be doing is feeding and nurturing and regenerating the biological cycles and nutrient cycles and hydrological cycles. So it's really bad news for the for these this, these multinational corporations that people are like, wait a minute, I got this, you know, hold my beer. I'm gonna go create chemistry through my through feeding my farm and soils. So there's, I know that doesn't fully answer the question, but. No, no, it's like I, you mentioned, it's a very big question to unpack, but it definitely helps to clarify a few things. And certainly where I was working in Guatemala and in the Philippines, and I mean, even in the United States and here in Spain, it's not much different. There yeah. may be more access to a variety of information and yeah. a generally higher level of literacy and access to the internet has certainly opened up opportunities to learn the types of things that we're talking about now, but it's still coming from an institutional base of chemistry, uh, machinery, petrochemical infusion into the land as if that were the saving aspect that's going to turn everything around when that's also the source of how we got to the point where we are. And it's not unique to developing countries. Yeah, and on that note, I, I can see, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how we went from like, organic to sustainable to regenerative to full-on greenwashing within like a few months it feels like <laughs> if you follow online like you and I closely do you know the movement and different actors um you know you've got large corporations um you know I won't let me not say them specifically by name but there's one that rhymes with Viagra um that you know is totally greenwashing and trying to say that they do regenerative agriculture when they are fully on the chemical trail. Um, I did also want to mention that I see a lot of people trying to complicate regenerative approaches with gimmicks and high tech, right? We don't need gimmicks. You don't need like a thing or a product or, you know, it is really about getting down back to the basics, getting our hands dirty. Like we, we've got to do the hard work, right? We're not just going to purchase stock or credits or like we've actually got to do the work at the local level wherever we are I if I were you I'd start in Barcelona I'm here so I'm starting here um but the gimmicks are really driving me nuts because when you see people doing like vertical farming and you know urban level and saying oh this is regenerative I want to ask can you explain to me what is it that you are regenerating with a bunch of fuel-based even if it's solar powers those minerals and ores for photovoltaics come from a rape economy in Congo. Like that's not regenerative. So what are we trying to regenerate? What does your model regenerate? Um, and also just going back really quickly to the root causes, I did also want to mention, um, and the reason that you, you feel me being a little bit defensive about the gender conversation is because during that water stories webinar, I was re uh, reading some comments from the, from the YouTube video and there was some chest pounding guy was like, well, you know, it was a good, good webinar, except you mentioned patriarchy every five minutes. So I just responded to his comment with the word patriarchy. <laughs> um, but I will say that um, why this is important, and it is, these are measurable things, right? There are really gendered dynamics around everything. And globally, there have been some studies done, I think, was it by C4 or, I can't remember exactly who, but this incredible case study that showed that in regions all over the world, Women, women who are at home traditionally with babies need just four Ps, different plants, 
at different periods for different purposes uh, at different periods. The thing is that, um, that so women around the world have always naturally practiced agroecology because they knew that they need things all the time. Every day they have to be able to harvest something or sell something or you know, create, build something. Um, and then what happened was there was this masculinization of that where, the, where men who control most of the land, um, you know, women only hold 2% of the world's titled arable land, only well between one and 2%. So men started to say, no, we're gonna use our entire family farm space to create monocrops for regional and global markets. And that's a, a real thing. <laughs> like suddenly all of these home-based smallholder farms that were based on agroecology had a massive shift towards monocrops for regional and global markets. And I think right now post COVID and with the regenerative and circular movements, we are really coming home. We are localizing within our bioregional level, within our watersheds, within our fiber sheds. So that's exciting. And, and I'm not, I, I think there needs to be a balance. It doesn't have to be one or the other, but we've really got to find a, a proper balance so that we don't go extinct. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And this is something that just isn't often talked about uh, in the region space, in the organic space, it's starting to come out. And obviously there are some real champions of it. There are some real champions of this information that you're putting out there. Some of the people that you've studied with and people on the ground in these areas that just don't have the same platform as some more visible teachers yeah. or, or voices. So there are places where you can go and get you know better informed about this and dig into the history and the details of how this is playing out right now. And it goes back to another thing that you were talking about is focusing on life affirming endeavors. You know, mm -hmm. um, much of this greenwashing can't be done when the root of what you are doing is affirming life on these places. If you're bringing in chemicals, if you're bringing in machinery to try and solve some problem, even if it's towards this concept of regeneration, an audit of that process needs to take place. Can you talk about some of the life affirming endeavors that you have really doubled down on in your own work? that you've seen have a positive impact? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's really going back to basics. It's not about gimmicks. It's all about low-tech process-based. So I took this great course on low-tech process-based um, riverscape restoration. And when what they explained is that when we say process-based, we are looking at what are the natural processes? What are the processes of nature and ecology and biology all around us? And how can we create the conditions to... Um, expedite those processes, right? So nature is a moving bus. You just got to jump on. Nature spends her entire existence trying to grow a forest. That's literally what's going on. Like, she's always like, how can I grow a forest today? And humans are just, just like with a whack-a-mole, you know, <laughs> like, no, no, we're not going to let you do that. So, um, <laughs> so whatever we can do to create those enabling conditions for life, building soil, um, focusing on species recovery, I see a lot, I was, I was contacted last week with, from a woman who, you know, there are a lot of do-gooders who are like, oh, I'm going to go to Africa and build a permaculture school, and she reached out to me, and, um, you know, she's like, I have about a, I want to get 100 acres originally, and then 1,000 acres uh, to do a food forest, and I was thinking, who invited you into the community, which community, uh, who asked you to do this, um, it's really privileged when white people go to, you know, um, 
lesser developed countries or into the global south, I don't even like to use the word developed, um, that slipped out, but into the global south and be like, I'm gonna buy land here and do a thing. And I'm, you know, when I just have the privilege, I can just come and consume land and mine it for minerals and create food for us. So that was one thing was just sort of that attitude, which I do think is a type of green colonialism. Um, and so there, there's no thousand acres in East Africa that doesn't belong to a community or, you know, you're, who are you displacing was my question by doing that <laughs> with your great vision. Second, if you're talking about a food forest on a thousand acres, uh-uh, like what was the original forest that was there, those original species. People do not understand that, again, the, the original vegetation is dropping leafy matter, creating the biology that's creating the chemistry that has created the soil structures for millions of years. So don't start coming with mangoes and avocados, which we love, but they, that cannot be the alpha in a, in a, in a concept especially on such a broad scale. So life affirming is about, you know, feeding soils. It's about, um, you know, understanding which cycles are we trying to, to regenerate? How do we try to decrease our harmful, and I'm no saint, I live in an apartment and have electricity and, you know, have, I'm attached to degenerative things, right? Um, but with through my work or my communication or trying to share out, trying to inspire people to learn more about how they can be in relationship with their locality, with their bioregion. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there's some more spir spiritual, I'm not a very spiritual person, so I can't give you like a spiritual, you know, I don't know. That's okay, <laughs> sure. that's okay. It doesn't have to come from that place. Uh, I, yeah, I'm in the same boat. It's not where I draw most of my inspiration from. I'm much more practical. And you were talking about, you know, a, a model that is increasingly common. And I've seen it in the global south. I've seen it in, you know, underprivileged communities that I've worked in. And I've also seen it in the United States and in Europe, where people with greater means go into a place thinking that they have a solution without understanding the local community or the needs of the area or the history behind how it got there. And okay, now we're going to do rewilding on a place that used to be productive farms and that people relied upon for any countless number of supplies that that fed into that community and kept it viable. And yeah, we could we could go into this a, a long time about how it's played out both at the small and the large scale, and it's caused a lot of animosity against ideas and concepts that are rooted in something really positive, but are really poorly executed because of a lack of understanding and a lack of communication with the people on site as to what they need, what they're trying to move towards. And in contrast to that, can you tell us about your own process when you are called into a community or, or invited to go? Where do you start in order to make sure that your project is run from that understanding that's lock, lacking in so many others? Yeah. Um... You know, my situation is unique because I have historically been working with large agencies that are invited in by disaster, right? Um, so it's not like there's a community meeting that says, oh, gee whiz, you know, maybe we should reach out to the UN and see if they can do something here. No, it's usually like there's a disaster. You have a lot of people on the move. There's a need to set up camps and shelters and all this stuff. Um, but we also work, I mean, I 
in working with forced displacement, you, there are different you know, types of groups that we talk about. You have refugees who are people who have exited their country. You have IDPs, which are internally displaced people who didn't leave their country, but they went to a, a safer or drier or more food-rich place um, or whatever that you know, issue may be. And then you have returnees, people who are coming home to their place of origin. Um, and then of course you have what's called the host community, but they're not, they don't self-identify as the host community <laughs> necessarily. They just are like, whoa, there's suddenly tens of thousands of people here and they're chopping down the trees that we wanna chop down for fuel and they're accessing our groundwater and our graze land. And so there's a potential for conflict there uh, because oftentimes, you know, refugees are not sent to the like prime real estate location. You know, they're sent to places where, uh, you know, or camps and things are uh, settlements are established in places where there's already, you know, not favorable land in a community where the services are already not necessarily meeting the full needs of the existing original community. Um, but regardless, um, you know, normally I'm called into a place to come and try to find a solution. I'm there for weeks at a time or coming in and out over a course of months working with staff of NGOs, working with government, uh, working with the community. And um, I always try to tell people, like, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. I mean, you are there to ask questions. When If I go to Kakuma refugee camp or Mananarawai community, I know nothing about that context. <laughs> I am not the expert. I, I know a few things, but I'm bringing them to a completely unknown context. Whereas the community are the consultants, right? Like they know the place, they know the issues, they know the way the water and energy flows. So it's really about coming and discussing with them, like what have the changes been, figuring out what is the story of place? You know, where are we? What's going on here? How did it used to be? How is it now? How do you want it to be? Or, you know, if you had a magic wand, um, and then also inventorying all the ingredients of resilience around us, all the different ethnobotanical resources, the, 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 you know, the quote unquote waste streams, what kind of resources can we recover, um, whether those are organic or not organic. Um, and so, and also really engaging them in co-design. So last week I was in South Sudan. Uh, in a very flooded place looking at flood zone food systems and um, with the community, we were working actually with two different communities. Um, every step of the way we're co-designing. I'm asking, how do you do this? How do you, if you want to tie together bamboos, what do you use? They use mosquito nets that they shred. They work super well. So we created, you know, bamboo rafts for floating gardens. And um, we also made a chinampa, like the Aztec um, chinampa. And that was totally co-designed. Like once I sense that somebody is a champion, I'm like a heat-seeking missile for champions. Um, if I figure out that somebody is like really interested in taking a lot of pride in their work and they're super activated by what we're doing and they've got some skills, I'm like, all right, you're the captain. Like you go, like you own this and let me just try to ask questions. So the Chinampa, at first we talked about making it four by eight feet or four by six, I mean, not feet, meters. But then I'm asking, well, with this black cotton soil and all this clay, if the edges erode, then what? And they're like, okay, well, yeah, you're right. Let's make it bigger. So the whole time we're just, 
engineering and designing the things together, asking each other questions. We're all students, we are all teachers, and we come together and we're just gonna make a thing and see if it works and test. It's a laboratory in that regard. Like these were some new things that we we're trying to develop. Um, so it depends on the context, but I'm brought in, I am brought in from the like kind of top down situation if I'm coming in through a huge NGO or the UN. Um, but I think for people who are trying to come into this space, you know, uh, I'm not even sure like you, what I would do is you have to figure out who are the green local champions. I do have the privilege that I, I get these opportunities to talk with Oliver and other people, but there really are amazing champions here from East Africa. And so we have to be raising those green local voices. And, you know, again, those are, that's a moving bus to jump onto. Figure out who are the champions who are actually doing accountable work, okay? That can, if, you, if they're given money, can show you like, these are receipts, this is what we spent. Um, and there's really a lot of transparency and accountability, but people who you can really see are really trying to do something and they just need a bit of support rather than people who have some grandiose vision and they're trying, or they talk a lot and it's not really clear what they um, achieve on the ground, but they're asking for money a lot. So those are the kinds of dynamics that I would be looking for if I were trying to do a project in a country that's not mine. <laughs> sure, sure. Those are some really good starting points, especially that dynamic of, you know, you've got two eyes <laughs> and one mouth, two ears, use them proportionally. I've always liked that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would imagine too, that working with diverse communities, especially ones that are recently superimposed upon existing communities, dealing with the conflicts and the, the viewpoints, the, the, the things that disrupt cohesion, getting a consensus, getting people to work together is probably one of the, the original uh, hurdles that you have to get over. And I'm wondering how you work with the members of different communities to try and get a consensus and get them rowing in the same direction, because it's essential for things to work and for things to remain viable once you're gone and in the long term. Yeah, so coming back to the story of place, I mean, I'm just there to listen and learn, and there's not really a need to build consensus because they're sharing their story, and they share out, like, they'll, you know, people will say, in this community, we used to have a lot of trees everywhere, and water was cleaner, animals were healthier, humans had more food and health, animals had more food and health, and there's been a disruption. Now we have disasters, we have extreme water events, we have um, periods of, of hunger. Um, and what we would like in the future is to return to a state of stability. And so like that doesn't take convincing <laughs> and it's not my job to convince. Um, they, they are very articulate and able to spell out what the challenges are that they have, <coughs> the problems that they face. And so then we discuss solutions and then we just move forward. So, you know, again, I'm not trying to come with, um, I don't even really have like a curriculum and I, I wouldn't say I'm a permaculture trainer. I don't know what I would call myself, but I mean, I, I've got a bunch of things that I've learned from courses and books and studying and YouTube videos. And if I come to a context and I can make connections you know, we all are making connections together and problem solving based on our experiential capital and our, you know, our educational capital and knowledge capital. So 
Um, I don't know if I remember the, the part of your question. Well, we're getting consensus and getting people to work together who maybe yeah. are coming from a place of conflict in the beginning. Oh, well, and I mean, so I also don't work in isolation. Like I'm working on larger teams. You know, maybe there's there are people who do wash programming, water sanitation and hygiene, some people that focus on peace building and conflict mitigation, uh, people who work on gender and sexual and gender-based violence. Some people work on governance. So I'm not there to like, you know, like I'll give you an example. Um, we, we just made floating rafts in South Sudan. I told the team very clearly, I can figure out the physics and the biology, like we can make it float and make it grow food. But if people are gonna be stealing the food or steal, picking apart the bamboos for the rafts because they need to sell those, I can't in a three week period solve that part. So I can do the physics and the biology, y'all have to do the governance and the human part and work with communities. And, and usually our, our teams, are from that community. So it's not an outside thing. I'm usually the only, or if Warren's with me, we're the only sort of people from outside. Um, well, that's not true. We also have other like African staff from other uh, neighboring countries, but usually the team that's more working directly with the community are from that community. And then we create WhatsApp groups, right? And we send pictures all day long and little drawings and videos. And I do a lot of remote mentoring and support um, however I can. So, you know, but culturally and with conflict, um, you know, like for example, in Burundi, when we did that project, we had a very mixed community. We had returnees, we had IDPs, we had host community members. Um, but the thing is, is that, we're we're trying to you know it's a it's i think it's a bit of a nostalgic process for people because when we start to do these low-tech interventions people always will say oh i remember this my grandfather used to do this or my or this is how my grandmother i remember her burying food waste or burying slaughter waste and so they trust that because they're like wait a minute this is familiar this is simple this is self-reliance this is i remember this is how my community was always self-reliant and resilient in yemen i talked about the quran let's build quranic nurseries and quranic food forests you know, like whatever is listed in the Quran, like guavas and pomegranates and apricots and almonds, everything, all those things, they will grow in Yemen. Okay. Um, so people really loved that. Same in Somalia, same kind of climate. So they're like, what I, our holy Quran is going to make us resilient. And so it's just a matter of trying to understand what, you know, what people value and how can we um, help to explain things in a way that really makes sense in their context and meeting people where they are. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I like what you were talking about as well of creating small, fast feedback loop projects that you can gain new information from, especially when you're new to a place. And one of the things that actually I was speaking about with Maura Gamble on the previous episode was that there is sort of an assumption, if you haven't worked with these communities, that there's a whole bunch of latent and dormant information, knowledge of the land, uh, you know, all these things that have been passed down. Whereas in a lot of cases, this isn't the case anymore. That knowledge has been broken through bad information, colonialization, uh, loss over generations through displacement. And though they may have a sense of what can work and something in their memory of how their, their ancestors used to do it, it doesn't necessarily match with what they've been taught up until that point. 
And so finding a way of connecting with the familiar and the indigenous knowledge while also bringing in new ideas that can help make that bridge and apply it in a more modern or a local context. And then applying it and testing it in small manageable sizes that are low risk, don't require a lot of investment. Is that a fair assessment of kind of the process of getting a a project going in a lot of these places? Oh, it depends. I mean, there's so many different actors working at so many different types of scale. Um, but yeah, there is a, for all of us, there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen, right? Yeah. We have been really hardwired and programmed, and I mean, there are reasons for that, right? Um, food is, so, is something you're supposed to buy, not care about how it's produced. Um, and so, I mean, whether I'm in Turkana, Kenya, or I'm in Oklahoma, like people have received wrong information for a reason, right? There are special interests behind why, you know, you always have to ask, in whose interest is it that I am learning the things the way that I'm learning them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, but, uh, you know, as Warren always says, and we always say in our trainings, there's three ways to get people to get on board and, you know, be really persuaded into your approach. Number one is the, you know, maybe the most important, and that is demonstration. People will only believe what they can see with their real eyes, unless it's religious. <laughs> but um, then number two, is demonstration, okay? That is the way that people are gonna see it, believe it, and number three, of course, is demonstration. So demonstration, demonstration, demonstration. You can talk all day long and you can tell people that chemicals are bad. You can talk about the you know, GMOs, you can do a lot of talking. Um, but what we do is like, the first thing we do is we make two little side-by-side miniature farms and I even use, you know, like little, I've got different tools, <laughs> but, you know, we will make like little miniature A-frame. This is actually from, this one is from Burundi. So we made a little miniature farm side by side too. And so like one will be like, oh, this is Oliver's farm. And Oliver just spends all day drinking tea. And then he doesn't pay attention to the land and soil. And he comes and tills all the land and sweeps up all the organic matter and then burns it. And we act actually take a pile of leaves and set it on fire. And then, oh, here's Natalie's farm. She's resilient. <laughs> And, she, and we make little, we take this little miniature A-frame, we make little swales, we do some stone mulching, we plant little trees, it's just a tiny little model, and then we cover the whole thing with mulch, and then we put, we start to pretend there's like a rainstorm, and everybody's snapping their fingers, and making thunder noises, and we pour water all over both of the farms. Usually these are hot locations with high sun and heat. As soon as we've done that and soaked both farms equally, immediately you see Oliver's farm is losing all this water, right? Water is just streaming off and causing a flooding in all the other farms. Natalie's farm, and I, you know, joke, because we try to always make it funny and pick on people in the meetings. <laughs> um, but this farm, the resilient farm, is retaining water, and then we have a temperature gun, and then we'll come back in the afternoon or in the next day, and already there's so much to observe. All of the organic mulch is, you can see there's termites and ants and all these people under there already starting to break it all down. Um, immediately it's cool, you know, you can see that that soil has remained cool. There's still moisture in there, whereas, you know, 
know, the, the dry farm, the non-resilient farm is desiccated and hot and crusted over and already dry. So already they're just like, got it, hold my beer, doing it, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> hold my local brew. So, yeah. I mean, little demonstrations like that are so important, right? And connecting with multiple senses, getting people involved in that fast feedback loop, a couple of, uh, yeah, examples of exactly how this would play out on a larger scale can really click with people who would not get it if you just talk about it and you go into soil biology too fast and you start talking about theory and, and design science from the beginning. Yeah. Have you got any other activities like that that you've noticed really connect with people right away? Well, um, I think just the virtue of doing the, a practical training. So, you know, um, we have we'll have the team, the staff of the NGO with, with the community side by side. And I, I always say this is not a workshop. It is a work hard shop. <laughs> so we are all in there, you know, getting blisters, working hard. People are like, well, what should I bring to the training? I'm like, bring gumboots and Panadol or aspirin. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, we provide the tools and we're all out there. We try to have fun. We play music, we sing, but we're digging we're doing citizen engineering and everybody's switched on, everybody's got, you know, get, doing something. Normally we create teams. So like if we're creating a sponge farm or a perma garden, um, you know, I'll figure out who the champions are. We break into teams and we have a lot of different captains. And then I walk around from team to team to team and give feedback uh, and just keep going and providing technical input, making sure that things are to a standard. And then we'll pause and then sort of rotate and make sure, like we'll all go to every station and explain and talk about, oh, this is how we make smile berms. This is how we measure a swale on contour. This is how we build A-frames. So it's really important. You can't just do this in a conference hall, right? People have to get, build the muscle memory. Um, and then miraculously, I think, I don't know how many trainings I've done with Warren, Somalia, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, and without fail, every single one except for Somalia, it rained on the last day. So like even in the middle of the dry season, there'll be like this freak, you know, active force majeure and we suddenly will get a rainstorm and all the swales fill up and we start to fill and spill into all the structures and people are like, holy crap, I, I get it, you know? Wow. So seeing with your own eyes and also seeing immediately how productive like when we make double dug beds within three days we've got sprouts of amaranth within three weeks people can be harvesting this is not a lot of convincing needed you know like they get it <laughs> like this for works sure. for sure and have you started to see any emerging patterns from all of the diverse communities that you've worked with about the things that make these projects succeed in the long run and those that start to fall apart after a couple of you know demonstrations yeah. yeah I mean I don't claim sometimes I get nervous because people are like oh we want to interview you and I'm like ah I don't know I I don't want to oversell the successes that we've had right there's a lot of failures it's a it's still an and I think the regenerative movement altogether there's still a lot of laboratory happening and building of evidence base like I think that's one of the major challenges is how do we battle with information so um, you know if you're working with um, a community whether that's in your own hometown or um, or elsewhere people don't understand the science and it's not always intuitive for them. So following up, 
continue you have to, to repeat a lot of simple basic ideas keep it simple i would say try to keep it simple i say here like here we um throughout east africa people eat a sort of a maize meal which is called either ugali or poshon um and it's like a big staple that every a lot of communities eat so i always tell them the soil is a stomach and every day it needs poshon 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 so you have to keep feeding the soil and um, you know that's with organic mulches and living mulches and things like that. So just really trying to break it down to some basic. And I'm not saying that this is only for the global south or communities who's you know this is for everyone. Um, you know we're not we're not carbon literate. We're not soil literate enough. Um, so also having a temperature gun and some other basic tools is really telling like I made a video a few last week in South Sudan which I, I was so surprised it suddenly had like 10,000 views where I just had the temperature gun and I was in a field that was totally desertifying and it's you know I called it stumpville because it's a like a graveyard of you know tree stumps and I just pointed my temperature gun I think it the highest temperature was clocked it was like 69 degrees celsius and there was one tree in the whole place. I don't know how it survived from being chopped down, but in the shade of that tree, it was 40 something degrees Celsius. It was definitely more than 25% degrees, just two meters away from each other. So when people see that, they're like, wow, I had no idea how hot it is. And we say the, you know, the word human comes from the word humus. The soil is like a human. It should have the same temperature. It should have the same hydration. It should have the same protection and food. So just treat the soil like you do your baby, you know? So <laughs> if you, I mean, however, or your pet cat. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever you love more. <laughs> and okay, so some, what are some of the other useful tools? You mentioned the, the heat gun being able to take readings yeah. on, on site. What are some of the other things you always have with you? Um, a, a refractometer. Yeah. So just showing, especially for NGOs that are focusing on nutrition security, yeah. um, just to demonstrate that the sugar content and nutrient content of individual plants can actually be measured very simply. Um, you can have a pH monitor. So just, uh, you know, either for soil, there's one for soil, there's one for water, and the alkalinity of water is also a really critical thing, right, in terms of, this is why it's so important to passively harvest rainwater. Rainwater is acidic, it chelates the minerals in the soil parent material that, you know, like little tiny jackhammers bursting open the soil so that those minerals can be bioavailable to plants. If you're just putting alkaline, alkaline water, you're, you're, totally not optimizing the nutrient potential of the food. Uh, apnea eye level, I would sometimes have, have my an eye level um, because you can quickly start to get a sense of the natural contours and patterns of the land. Um, I like to make a human swale. So when we make an A-frame, you know, we train everybody how to make an A-frame. Uh, the calibration part is always a challenge for people like we just always want to make sure that we do that well um and that people are calibrating every time they're using it because a goat will stand on the a-frame and i always say there's three thieves of water number one sun is the thief of water number two wind and evaporation and number three number three gravity and slope 
right? So sun, wind, and slope. Those are the three ways that your water and soil moisture will leave. But the fourth one is your uncalibrated A-frame. <laughs> 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 just like quantum physics like if your a-frame is a little bit off across a long landscape you're creating a drain and not a not a contour you know at elevation trench right um so we do that and then um oh shoot what else, else i was gonna say Oh yeah, so when you know we break into teams and every every team gets a name, we try to make it a little competitive. I mean, I grew up as an immigrant, you know, only child, so <laughs> I don't really know how to be competitive, but I try to pretend. So we make A-frames and um and then I tell every team, go and mark out starting from this point, which do which are do you think is the contour starting from this point? So just with your eyeball. Uh, try to measure, you know, figure out where's the natural contour of this land. So the, every team is going in different directions and then they see, whoa, and then, then we measure with the A-frame and they're like, oh my God, we're completely off. So I try to have little tiny sayings like the eye will lie, the rule is use a tool or, you know, those kind of little peg mnemonics that <laughs> can help people remember. Um, people really think they can see contour with their eyes. We just can't, we're just, our brains are not calibrated that way. Um, the other thing that, that we do is like, once we've mapped out the a whole long contour, we'll get like 50 or a hundred people to stand and join hands all along that contour. So you really get a visual, a visualization of that same elevation and that contour across the landscape, which might totally defy what you had imagined um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we just get, we just use whatever's around us to try to describe concepts in different ways. Yeah, that resourcefulness is so key. And what are some of the things that you have learned that you've picked up maybe in the last few years or recently in the activities and the projects that you've done that were, that were new to you or that perhaps didn't come out of the courses that you took? Well, the failures, you know, so um, a lot of, well, there's, there's, that can be answered so many ways. A lot of knowledge around um, the indigenous and local resources. So, you know, we will always do a resource walk where the NGO team is on a team with the community. They're all one team, but we break them into smaller teams. So every team will go out for like 20 minutes with a bucket or a pail and collect all kinds of resources. And then we come back in a circle, everybody lays down all the resources uh, in the center of the circle. And we will spend two or three hours, like, and every, like we just go one person at a time, we'll talk about, oh, what is this resource? And um, this is what we use it for. And it's interesting because sometimes we have had host communities and uh, like displaced communities together in one circle. And uh, one mom will be like, we use this, green plant for our baby's stomach problems when they have diarrhea and then you know the 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 person from south sudan will be like are you serious we use that same thing for like brushing teeth or you know i always tell the story there was one woman who held up a this cactus and she said this is a very useful resource we um if you have a blemish or like some skin thing you know you can squeeze the juice and uh, just apply it on your skin to like remove acne and blemishes. Or if the hyenas are disturbing your 
livestock, your camels or whatever, you just dip this cactus in blood and throw it to the hyena and they, they eat it and die. So there's just all this really interesting <laughs> that come out. And then we'll say like, oh, this is a, a, a plastic jerry can, like a 20 liter jerry can. What can this be used for? And then people will say, oh, you could use it for this or you could use it for drip irrigation or you could, you know, so we just really try to expand our imagination and knowledge around all the usefulness of all the things around us. And that's an important exercise because oftentimes people are given the impression by the humanitarian community that you're poor, you have nothing, you depend on us and we know what you need. And when we do this exercise, they're like, wow, we actually are really wealthy. <laughs> we have so many things here. And it's always a really rich exchange of knowledge. And, you know, because you have kids sitting with old people as they're talking about, oh, in my, when I was a child, we used to use this. And that's not a common exercise, you know? So there's a, so much sharing and a, a learning that is extracted from that, that the community benefits from, not only us as trainers or whoever, uh, and, you know, but, you know, so that's always a really important exercise. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot of learnings around not doing appropriate community engagement. You know, like you come back to a community and you're like, why would you have done that? <laughs> um, why did you put the berm on the uphill side of the swale? Um, because gravity, like, do you, you know, so you're just like, wow, I never thought that you would have taken this knowledge or skill and translated it into this completely ineffective way. So again, like regular follow-up, regular, um, and that, by the way, was one of our civil engineers that did that <laughs> project. <so. laughs> oh, uh, anyway, I thought like physics was part of civil engineering, but maybe not. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, another time, you know, we made a huge swale, a big primary swale for flood mitigation in a community, um, but the men kept bring, coming over the berm with the animals. And it created a low point and a weak spot in the berm. And when the whole thing um, filled up, the, the berm broke and you had a whole new gully that was forming. So we came back, we, we adapted that berm with a pond. We're like, okay, you know, we, know, we recognize now that you, this water will be useful for livestock watering. Why don't we actually create, you know, respond to that and create a, a designated place with a big dam where you can take the animals and, you know, so it's, um, you know, permaculture is about ex taking, accepting feedback, starting small, all of those apply. Absolutely. We, we sort of got into this before we started with the interview, and I know this is going to be a big question for you. You've got a lot to say on how people can start to contribute to this space who are interested in doing the type of work that you are doing. There's probably a lot of misconceptions about what your job description actually is and yeah. where they need to go to be effective and actually start applying it. Okay, so I, I do see a trend that, it, you know, regenerative approaches are exciting because we actually have solutions to a lot of the problems that we're facing as a global family. But a lot of times I see people just wanting to be do-gooders, which no one's gonna blame you for that, but it's almost creating a, a sense of white, a new, a new green colonialism and white, well, like green saviorism, like white green savior. And that's a bit, that can be bothersome. And I know that a lot of East African people would echo, um, echo that, right? Like here- Guatemalans and Filipinos and Senegalese, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. They're like, oh God, here they come again with now like a new thing that we're supposed to do. You know, it was oh, not yeah. before it was conventional agriculture. Now they want us to do something else. And right. can we go back to our traditional things? So I would just say that, first of all, people ask me, how did you get into this work? I didn't, I didn't come as a regenerative permaculture person. I came as an urban planner to work on post-war town planning in South Sudan in 2005, um, working with the government and working with the technical people from the ministries. Um, there was no community at that time per se, like they were returning as refugees. Um, but because in my context, I started to see needs that as I was learning about agroforestry, agroecology, passive water design, all these things, I was like, I think that this tool can be used to be applied to this, it, the challenges faced where I am. So I think permaculture needs to meet people where they are. I'm a permaculturalist. I'm not a farmer, right? In my apartment, I have giant bins of earthworms and I compost any organic material, carton boxes, food waste, bones, a whole rooster. Um, and I grow spirulina with my own urine. I have a garden growing all kinds of crazy things out there. So am I a farmer? No, but people are like, why don't you move into a house? And I'm like, well, there's excitement in demonstrating if you're an urban apartment dweller, do what you can, use the space that you can. If I, I hear, I have IT professionals who've reached out to me. They're like, I wanna shift my career. I wanna be part of the regenerative or permaculture movement. You don't have to quit your job and forfeit a salary and go buy land and start doing market gardening. Use your skills, let permaculture meet you where you are and make apps come support with some of the tech that's needed. I'm not a gimmick person, but there are some tech things that can be really helpful, right? Connecting people, uh, especially around circular economy. Um, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but as we dematerialize our economies and start to be, move more into utility economies and service-based economies, like for example, I presume you own a fridge or you have a curic or whatever. You know, you don't need, you, you're, you need the function of that, but you don't want to deal with asset disposal and all this stuff. So how can we, how can people with an IT department come with the apps, you know, required and innovation to link people within movements, within markets, within circular markets, within regenerative waste re resource recovery. So you can still be a permaculturalist and be in an office. Um, and, and make a major contribution. I would also say that wherever you are, some indigenous community was there. And if you're in the US, there, there is a renaissance and a, a emergence of indigenous, um, well, justice, I think. And with that, all of the, like, if you know Sean Sherman, the sous chef, and other um, actors from different tribes from different parts of the US, I would say, you know, are there people within my community who are trying to do something to heal this landscape, to return to the indigenous foundation that we that worked here for so long before colonialism? Are there are there single mothers? Are there battered women? <laughs> um, you know, how what in my town or in my community can I do? Can I volunteer? Can I do to try to build up our bioregion so it's competitive? It's resilient to Ukraine and Russia 
and divorcing ourselves from fossil fuels. Uh, you know, anyway, I mean, there's so many examples, but let bring from where you're sitting, what, how do you bring the tools in to help problem solve the things that you're already working on is what I would say. But if you want to, if you are looking to break into the international development work, I don't, I mean, that's a hard question for me to answer because I came as an urban planner to come do urban planning, hired by a firm that had a project in urban planning. Um, I think, you know, the more you increase your knowledge, the more you increase your skills, the more you have value to add, um, use LinkedIn, um, use the professional networks, try to keep connecting with people who are doing something similar. And I think that we're gonna see a swelling of opportunities all over the world for localized solutions. Very well said. And that's very much in line with what I've been trying to make this podcast focused on is the message that all of your skill sets, all of your experiences can be contributed to this and that you can apply, whether it's you know permaculture design thinking or holistic management uh, frameworks to whatever sector you're already in and whatever challenges that you're finding in your own community. Much like you said, you don't need to go to the other side of the world to be some sort of savior of the ecological uh, element. You can address the issues that your community are having, the, the projects that are already underway, oftentimes being of help to someone's project that has been going on for a while and has been lacking in support can be yeah. much more effective because they've done a lot of the groundwork than everybody having to start their own project and start from scratch and be the person who started it. You know, A lot of it is just the ego in that, whereas assisting and offering support in something that's been struggling to get going for a long time, but has a lot more knowledge and a lot more establishment than your new cool effort is, uh, it's, it's not as glamorous, but it is just as necessary, if not more. And you know, um, also, well, first of all, if you live on our planet, you are in an ecosystem, you're in a watershed, you're in a fiber shed. So connect with groups, and especially if you're trying to cut your teeth and like learn how to do new things uh, in ecological restoration, then definitely look at your own ecosystem. But if your ecosystem is New York City or a major urban space, there are a lot of ways that we don't talk enough about um, to be involved, right? So there are there may be city council committees where you are, like if you want to, you know, get get involved locally in your in whatever the committees you are, city council. They can be on bike paths, they can be on affordable housing, they can be on public transit, they can be on pocket parks, they can be more on urban agroforestry. So you know, you may have an office job, but you want to be involved. Start with that, and especially in the U.S., there are so many opportunities to get involved in the local governance structures and have a voice. There's a lot more agency. Well, in some ways, you know, uh, at, at the at municipal level within the U.S. and even in Barcelona, by the way, like there's I think a lot there's going a lot on here. On. Yeah, so it does, you don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to touch dirt if you don't want to touch dirt. Um, but with you know, again, going back to dedicating your life's energy to life affirming endeavors. If you're going to be in an office and you want to be like, hey, I can support or I can help fundraise or I can help. Uh, do research or I can help come with a vision or use my IT skills or my finance skills or whatever. Yeah, so many opportunities. And Natalie, before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners how they can either get in touch with you or find more resources uh, along these lines? 
Okay, well, one way that people can get a hold of me is through my LinkedIn account. So the name is Natalie Topa, not the French type, no H. Uh, Natalie Topa, and you know you can reach out to me there. Um, and I also have just created a YouTube channel, which I, I'm not, I haven't edited. <laughs> They're not edited. It's just all like Natalie B-roll. Um, but you know, sometimes when I'm in the field, I was actually I would make videos internally for our teams, just little clips here and there. So I thought, you know, maybe other people can find this useful. So the YouTube channel is called Natalie Topa and. Um, yeah, and I do also have Facebook groups. There's one called Natalie Topa Colon Permaculture and Resilience Design. Another one is Natalie Topa Colon Regenerative Communities and Circular Bioeconomy. Another one is Natalie Topa Colon Fungi and Mycology. And then Natalie Topa Colon uh, The Permaculture Kitchen and Home. And then lastly, Natalie Topa Colon Seed Saving and Sovereignty. So I try to share out things that I'm doing. Uh, but also other resources as I'm doing my own research and learning. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. I'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes for this episode. And Natalie, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Let's catch up again soon. Sure. Thanks so much, Oliver. Maybe I'll come to Barcelona. Thanks again to Natalie Topa. I'll be posting all the links that she mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons for free. And before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now in the next episode in this series on building strong communities, I'll be taking us back to the steps that communities can take to tackle complex problems simultaneously in a wonderful interview with Sarah James, the co-author of The Natural Step for Communities. So be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you stream your podcast from. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.